Um, and just, yeah, to give you a heads up, we're jumping straight into the Bible reading today in kind of a mid-thought. So Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul, has been um, uh, really uh, nutting through some um, his argument uh, as he addresses the Galatian believers. We've been working our way through uh, this little letter, Paul's letter to the Galatians, and uh, this great concern of Paul for this church that were um, that he founded, he uh, they came to hear the gospel of grace that they can be right um, before God by grace uh, alone through their faith in Christ. Uh, and the previous passage we looked at um, why is it Paul's astonishment that they're taking on the law, uh, the law of Moses as a way of finishing what um, God started in His grace, and that um, the futility of that that actually the law brings a curse. But the wonder is that Jesus became a curse for us to redeem us from the law uh, and that the law was only to prepare us for the coming of Christ uh, where all Gentiles will be saved by faith alone. And so Paul's left um, us in the last, last week's passage um, uh, talking about this faith, this faith that Abraham had, this faith uh, that justifies um, it has come with the person of Jesus uh, fully. And so we're going to launch straight back into that argument from verse 23 of Galatians chapter 3. Um, if you have a, a church Bible, there's a bookmark there for you. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was come, was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptised into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus." If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I am saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. 
I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. You did me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing of me now? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. It is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always, not just when I am with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone, because I am perplexed about you. Thanks, Mark. Thank you, Steve. Well, there's a lot in that passage, isn't there? Uh, I mean, there's a bunch of stuff about Paul's uh, circumstance, the, um, you know, his eyes, uh, you know, you, they would have given him their eyes. Uh, he, he had this illness. Um, he's, he's perplexed about them. Then there's also all this heavy stuff, a theological kind of argument. And, uh, and we're probably not going to focus too much on the, on the circumstance uh, at the time. We're going to focus on the theological argument. And that's partly because this these central two chapters of Galatians, really, that's, that's kind of what the, the gist is here. It's a, it is a, we're going through, a, I guess, a deep theological um, little walk together. Uh, so um, let, me, let me just pray again and ask God to enlighten our hearts and minds. Our Father, we pray, uh, just help us to understand, help us to, um, particularly, just to um, change us in the way you want us to change. Uh, Father, we're yours, your servants. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, about a year ago, I read about a Nigerian woman who had just become a mother again to an 11-month-old baby boy, orphaned because his biological mother had just been shot dead. The boy was delivered to this woman and she took him in. And he's not the first. He, uh, she and her husband have now adopted over 50 children. Because of the huge number of children being orphaned in the violence against the church in Nigeria. And they all live together in, in the one home. Uh, they've had to make some modifications to the home, obviously. You don't set out. Um, thinking that you're going to have 50 kids to put under your roof. And, and of course, the home they're living in is no dusty one-bedroom shack. Uh, they're living in the bishop's residence because her husband is the bishop, Bishop Ben Kawashi of Jos in Nigeria. And her name is Gloria. What a, what a wonderful name. And she said that what charities normally provide for orphans is food and shelter 
and they, they are essential needs. And of course, she's set up various centres for kids, and she's provided through those centres those, those needs for over 500 children. Wow. But those who are orphaned, she says, they have a particular need. And it may not come to you, no, it's not rocket science. The, the need they have is for a mother and a father. And so that's what Gloria and Ben Kawashi have become for these 50 children. Wow. What a witness to the love of God. Those kids have come from, from being destitute orphans without hope, without connection, without privilege, to being now children of the bishop and his wife, who have a big house to share, from hopelessness to honour. What a wonderful gift for these children, and may God continue to bless them and bring an end to the horrible suffering of his church in Nigeria. Well, over the last few weeks, we've been thinking about justification by faith. That is that God gives us his approval, justification. It's not that we sort of justify ourselves in some way. He gives us approval, not because we've earned it through uh, our, our good behavior or anything, but because we've entrusted ourselves to Christ. It's a relational thing, and it's a gift, justification. Christ has earned it, uh, and he's given it to us. And what I'm hoping that you've picked up is that justification is, in fact, more than just forgiveness. Nothing wrong with forgiveness. That's a biblical principle, too. Uh, with forgiveness, you don't hold the sin against the person, and that's, that's certainly a biblical concept. But justification, in a sense, it's a little bit more. It, justification declares you innocent, as if you had never sinned. Your sin is taken away. As the psalmist says, uh, Psalm 103, for as far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed our transgression from us. And all we need to do is put our faith in his promise. This is the extraordinary news about justification. But there's something even better than justification. What? Being counted as guiltless is awesome, you'd have to agree, and yet there's even more than that that he does for us. God gets personal. He gives us privileges, family privileges. He draws us into himself, into his eternal life. He does something so special that it could only come from his infinite love for humanity, and that is God makes us his own children. He adopts us. Surely this is the highest honour of being a Christian. Adoption into God's family. From our passage today, chapter 4, verse 4. When the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Like the Nigerian orphans, we are given what we need. We need a parent. God himself. Not only do we have a safe place to go when we die, but God, our maker, gives us himself for eternity as our dad. 
We celebrated Father's Day last week and every year I'm very thankful for the great gift of my own earthly father. But I'm also reminded every year that for many people the relationship with their father is painful or their, their sense of identity as a father brings pain. Absent fathers, unfaithful fathers, abusive fathers, Emotionally challenged fathers, relationally challenged fathers. But with God calling us his children, fatherhood gets a relaunch. A present father, a faithful father, a loving father, relationally and emotionally empowering father, God the father. And so adoption, this is big, this idea. Have we got our heads around it? Uh, do you remember uh, that old song? Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. You're going to sing it with me? Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. Come on. That we should be called the fathers of God. That we should be called the sons of God. Yeah, there you go. So those who didn't know that song and those who did, maybe there's an age thing there, but um, it's a beauty. And, um, and the question is, have we thought about this much lately? And that's what we're going to do today. And the, the way I'd like to do this first is to look briefly at the big picture, the 30,000 feet kind of picture of what Paul's saying about being children of God and why he's saying it. And then, secondly, we'll look at the detail, in particular what the implications are. What are the implications of being children of God? So firstly, the big picture. What's Paul saying about being children of God and why is he saying it? One of the things I noticed as I was reading through this passage a few times this week was the, the number of time references before until now no longer formally those those kind of actually punctuate the passage we just had read for us he's showing us the before and after picture urging us to orient ourselves to our new status to the now i'm sure you've all seen before and after photos in relation perhaps to some health kick uh, you know, maybe a person's modified their diet or they've modified their, um, their exercise and they've experienced some health benefits. They want to show you all about it or the, you know, the company that sold them the, the stuff they needed to do this wants to show you something about it. And so they show you the really obvious photos and, and in, the, in the before show, never, it's never the other way around, is it? It's never like you start with the, with the, after, with, with the before being um, really sort of smiley and bright and happy and then the after is kind of like this. They're trying to give a clear message, aren't they, that that actually before was all sad and now happy afterwards, right? I mean, I know this is a trivial example. I am sorry about that. But um, what Paul is doing is painting the before and after shot of the Christian. In the present, because of what God has done, things are awesome, as we'll see. And maybe your past isn't as good as you thought it was. He's placing their present up against their past. And here's the problem, that the Galatians are turning back to their old way of life. 
You'll notice as we go through this passage, uh, in some ways we're working from the end of the passage forward today. Uh, So looking at chapter 4, verse 9, But now that you know God, Paul says, or rather are known by God, how is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable forces? So they're being tempted to forget just how good their transformation was and how bad their old situation was. So it's not just that they're, you know, they've been on this health regime and it's just gotten too hard and they've gotten lazy. It's that they're choosing to go back to their old way of life. They must have, under, they must have misunderstood something about the nature of their transformation if they're choosing to go back. See, unlike the health regime, their transformation was done for them. It was done to them not by them. And their transformation had not only benefits for them in the future and also for the present, but it also reveals things about uh, their past that they hadn't realised and that it's actually good to realise. They shouldn't go back. Now, in, in this passage, I think, if we read it carefully, I think that Paul is drawing a distinction at times between um, the Jews and the Gentile parts of his audience. So on the one hand, there's the mostly Gentile audience of his recipients of the Galatian church, the letter to the Galatians. And then on the other hand, there's, there's the Jews. And there are some Jews in Galatia, uh, but Paul himself is a Jew, and so are the people in Galatia trying to draw these Gentiles into Judaism. And to the Gentiles among them, the non-Jews, he says, chapter 4, verse 8, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. And the Jews are there listening in, and they're saying, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you Gentiles, you used to be slaves. Obviously, we weren't. (laughs) Uh, But to the Jews, Paul says, actually, you were really no different from a slave because you were underage, at the time, that's the, that's the image he uses, and you had a guardian looking after you, and that guardian was the law of Moses. So to all intents and purposes, you were enslaved as well. Uh, you had no control over your inheritance. You, you just had to do as you were told. Have a look at chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. Paul says, what I am saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he's no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. So what you've got at this point is a bunch of Jews hearing this and they're sitting there with their jaws dropped and their eyes are wide open like rabbits in the headlights. We were in slavery? Are you talking about Egypt, you know? No, 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 he's he's talking about something different from that. In slavery to the spiritual forces of the world? But we had God's special law. uh, And and that was to show us that we were different, right? How can we be said to have been slaves? But Paul is saying that the law of Moses was like a guardian, overseeing the people for a time, this people of promise, until the time came for that promise 
to be revealed and their true identity to be revealed. We've been looking at the promises that God made to Abraham in our Joseph series, and then we've been looking at it at various points through this Galatians series. This really is a, a fundamentally important arc that is drawn over the entire Bible, that God makes promises, and then over the course of the Bible, he shows how he's fulfilled them in Jesus. So the, the promise that starts in Genesis uh, chapter 12, verse 1 to 3, uh, is that he would bless Abraham's descendants, Israel, and bless the world through his descendant. And he made that point last week that it was particularly through this one descendant of Abraham, Jesus. So he made those promises. And then the law came hundreds of years later through Moses. And it's introduced because of the people's sin. And in fact, specifically to show them their sin. It's not introduced as a ticket to receiving the blessing. The blessing's coming because of the promise that was beforehand, you see. Another illustration I heard this week, actually, was the idea of the law as a magnifying glass. And so, you know, you're out in the sun and you're looking at the, and, and the magnifying glass comes up and it shows you your sin. And yet what's happened is the sun has kind of, the, the force of the sun has actually been magnified and, and, and caused the, a burning uh, because the, the law has actually, you know, shown just how bad the problem is. So the law is a babysitter who reports to the parents that the children have been acting up. There's many different ways that we can illustrate what this is. When Paul says the spiritual forces of, the, of, the, of this world, of spiritual forces of this world, I think he means their sin. And, you know, they're no less sinful than the Gentiles. It's a major problem. And you can see that all throughout Israel's history. Here's the, the group who claims to be God's special people, and yet they're constantly worshipping anything other than God, idol after idol after idol. And this is how Paul puts it in chapter 3, verse 22, sorry, 23 and following. Paul says, Before the coming of faith, we were held in custody, custody under the law, locked up. Okay, now it's not just a babysitter, it's a, it's a prison officer. Locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. And then, and then the key point, really, that this passage is driving at, I think, is verses 26 and 27. So, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. So the way a person becomes a child of God is not through being born into the privileged lineage of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. I mean, the way I became a child of my parents was being born into their lineage. But the way you become a child of God is not that way. It's by putting your faith in the descendant of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, this extraordinary descendant, Jesus the Messiah. Now, it's not as if the Jews don't have any distinctive blessing. There are many extraordinary things uh, for the Jews. They were the race through whom God's Messiah came. Just imagine if the Messiah had come as an Aussie. 
you know, and you, you're traveling around the world and, you know, you go to the churches around the world and you, and you say, oh, yeah, the, the Messiah was an Australian. Yeah, and you'd feel a certain pride, wouldn't you? You know, and I, I remember he, he used to, you know, put sausages on the barbie like the rest of us, you, you know. It'd be quite good, wouldn't it? And then, and then you kind of say, yeah, so you should all become Aussies. And you can see how this, this is crazy, isn't it? So they have this immense blessing, um, but even they are only children of God through faith in the Messiah, not because of their heritage, uh, not because of their law. So the picture is, whether you're a Jew or Gentile, if you place your faith in Jesus, you are adopted by God. I mean, that's huge, isn't it? You're invited into his mansion to be with him for eternity under his care. If you have faith, God has adopted you as his child through that faith. So what about you? You know, I, I, I know that there are there are often in churches people who I just like love the love the fellowship, love being part of the group, and it is a warm group. And so many people in our wider community don't have the benefits of being able to come along to church. And you know, when when you're unwell, somebody you know sticks a meal um, you know on your doorstep, and people look after you and they care about you. And, but so it is possible for us to come along, but but never have actually asked that question. You know, have I personally put my own faith? In Jesus and I want to invite you to do that so secondly the implications of being children of God the implications the status as children of God is obviously about as good as it gets for a human being and no surprise that it impacts our lives hugely even now before the return of Christ and there are four implications of this you'll see them on your notes uh, the first is the longest, so the, the, um, the outline is not to scale, if you like. So implication one, we therefore have unity with all brothers and sisters. Unity with all brothers and sisters. See verse 28 there of chapter 3. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So faith in Jesus unites in a way that nothing else does. All those who put faith in Christ are one because we're all sons and daughters of God. And so what we've got to do then is, is think about, well, what are the earthly barriers, the status barriers that we just inherit through our community, through our life in, in Australia, in the Western world? What are those barriers that we have that we need to smash down, we need to knock out of the way. No earthly status barrier should be allowed to undermine our unity because we're brothers and sisters. Not race, not social status, not gender. We're eternal family. So there's a little letter in the New Testament called Philemon. Do you know Philemon? Uh, Paul wrote that as well. And it's written about Onesimus. And Onesimus used to be Philemon's slave. But he ran off, which is a really, really bad thing to do in the first century. When they come back, they're entitled to do whatever they like with those slaves. And the norm was to brand them on the forehead with some kind of you know, symbol that showed that they were yours. But they could do anything. 
Uh, but no, Paul asks Philemon to receive him back as uh, not as a slave, but as a brother. See, this is socially subversive. And the gospel is going to do that. It's going to take what society says and it's going to mess with it. Having said that, uh, this, I don't think, is to say that all the slaves of the world of the day could then get together and call a meeting with their slave masters and say, OK, guess what? <laughs> I'm now a child of God, so I'm not your slave anymore. Isn't it great? Are we going to you know, throw a freedom party for me? I don't think most of the slave masters would be that interested in throwing a, slave, in a, a freedom party for their slaves. See, the thing that we've got to keep in mind is Paul wasn't running a, um, a program of progressive social reform. Now, obviously, um, it depends how you take that, I realise that. But I guess what, what I'm wanting to say is that this is not about changing earthly, um, changing everybody's earthly status. What he's saying about earthly status is that it mustn't undermine your heavenly status, that your heavenly status needs to trump your earthly status. Our heavenly status is that we're united. It should cause us to see past these earthly status things. The things that disunite us, we cast them out in, in our context. Uh, it's a tricky one. Feel free to follow me up later if, if I haven't explained that particularly well. Now, what about men and women? Uh, that one comes up in this passage. He says that gender distinctions, okay, is he saying that gender distinctions no longer exist? <laughs> Oh, this is an easy one. Let's just move on to the next one. Um, obviously, it's a controversial topic today. Secularists are wanting to see gender and sexuality as fluid concepts. Uh, and there are areas, apparently, in which you have complete freedom of choice. And anyone who talks about, you know, taking away any of that, even just a smidge of that freedom of choice, is, um, is a hater. And the language that's used is just so extreme that we should be able to see that there's something not quite right about it anyway. Um, and the reality is we are, we've, we've got to work with the Word of God and try and work out what it does say and what it doesn't say. I want to say first that just see the parallel with slavery. I don't think Paul is saying that these distinctions between men and women no longer exist, just as the distinctions between... Um, between slave and master no longer exist. He's saying that they don't impact on our status. And status is really the key concept for understanding this. I don't think this is about abolishing gender distinctions at all. Paul talks in other places about how men and women complement each other. And the word you sometimes use is asymmetrically. You know, so we're not just mirror images of each other. Um, in particular in the area of marriage and in the area of church leadership. And sometimes this view of, of a complementary view of men and women puts Christians under extreme pressure uh, to blend in with society. But what he's saying here is nevertheless radical. That men who in the first century would have had all the status, all the privilege, socially, politically, in the family, in the courts, now, as children of God, they have no higher status than women because uh, they've got equal status. That distinction between the two doesn't count in this, uh, in this sense, in terms of status. Women should never be looked down upon or joked about. Women, Christ empowers you. 
Christ wants to hear your voice. He wants to hear your testimony. Gender distinctions in the church and in the Christian home are never to be seen as a question of status. We are all cherished by God equally. Finally, racism. In the first talk in the series, you may have remembered I said this, or you, you may not, but I did say this. The ethnicity issues in Galatians are not about racism. They're about the transition from being people of God, being defined by an ethnic identity, to now being defined by their faith identity. Okay? And I, think, I, I don't think Paul is complaining about racism per se in Galatia. However, racism is an important issue in the way we apply Galatians to us today. Because I think racism is all around us. Neither Jew nor Gentile, how does that apply to our situation? Well, I think one of the ways is, you know, someone comes in the door, neither Aboriginal or non-Aboriginal, neither Australian nor Chinese. You know, we're all one. One of my favourite things about my previous church was the fellowship that we had with the Christians in the Chinese service. There was a service where um, they spoke mostly Mandarin, probably half of them didn't, didn't know any English, and then there was the English service. And so any time that I did anything in their service, whether preaching sermons or announcing things, I needed a translator. And it sort of does give you that sense of distance. Every time you say something, you have to stop and wait for them to understand it. And then you, hear the, you see the nods you know, about 10 seconds later. Oh, they've got it. You crack a joke and everybody's flat and they think, oh, that doesn't translate into Mandarin. Um, but nevertheless, the warmth was palpable. We had a steamboat dinner hosted by our Chinese brothers and sisters for the English service. And it was hugs and smiles all around. We just loved each other, even though we often needed to be translated. See, our spiritual unity is of a higher order than our cultural or language unity. That is, if you have faith in Christ, you have more in common with Chinese brothers and sisters who don't speak English and don't know how to fit into an Australian society, more in common with them than you do with the unbelieving Anglo-Aussie across your back fence or the, person that you, the friend that you have a barbie with that you just connect with. You've got more in common because of our unity in Christ and God's family. Foreign-born Christians are your kin. They are kin. They are special. And we love them. They are eternally connected and loved. All right, as I said, that was, that's the longest of the implications. Uh, implication two, therefore, is we pray prayers of a child of God. So chapter four, verse six. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out Abba, Father. Abba is a term of affection and respect, a combination of those two ideas, used in Jesus' day by both young children and grown-up children. And this is the term that Jesus used when he prayed to God. It's like calling God dear father, or even potentially dad, depending on the situation. And so this is now how we pray to God, okay? Uh, yes, we, all, we also um, address him as almighty, as Lord, 
as infinite, perfectly holy. But God has given us the spirit of his son. And that spirit of Jesus, that spirit uses our mouths to call out to God, his father. Isn't that extraordinary? The son uses our mouths through the spirit to call out to his father. So if you have the spirit of Jesus seeking to call out to his father using your mouth, it's a good idea for you and me to get on board. Because we're drawn into this this eternal fellowship between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And it starts even now as the Son, the Spirit of the Son is in us calling out to the Father. Wow. And so I don't think we should just call him God. I'm not saying you shouldn't call him God. But... Uh, you know, and say you're you're searching, seeking, and you're saying, you know, hello God, are you out there? Uh, are you there? Are you are you listening? Then sure, you know, call him God. That's that's fine. And and you know, you can say our dear God because that's that's who he is. Uh, but once you put your faith in Jesus, then call out to him as Jesus does, as Father. This is a very precious word that you have to call him father and so as soon at the from the very moment that you have enough faith to call him father i don't think it takes that much just just try it from that very moment then he is henceforth your father for eternity you you are drawn into an extraordinary spiritual reality so do it don't miss out on the opportunity don't just call him god um as if you're you know, writing a letter to someone you've never met, dear God. I mean, I'm not saying you, you, you must do this and you mustn't do that, okay? Law, regulations, all that. Um, what I'm saying is we have this immense privilege. It's, it's not a special option for, for extra spiritual Christians. This is the Christian norm, our Heavenly Father. Sometimes, you know, I'm dropping my kids at school and uh, sometimes my kids' friends talk to me I love, you know, trying to make them laugh and everything. And, uh, you know, and you have a gaggle of little kids around you. And that's lots of fun. Um, and then my son or daughter talks to me, you know, calls to me and says, uh, I really need a cuddle, Dad. And immediately, you know, my attitude changes because this little girl is my daughter or this little boy is my son. And, and that's the one that I, I just run to, to, to cuddle. And so... I'm, I'm all gods, you know, I, I only have ears, he has ears for me, I only have ears and eyes for him. God is like that for us. Uh, when you pray, pray, dear Father. Implication three. We therefore inherit the inheritance of a child of God. Chapter four, verse uh, seven. So you're no longer a slave, but God's child, and since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Brothers and sisters, we are beneficiaries of the biggest estate that has ever been distributed. Don't sit around hoping for Aunt Gertrude, you know, that she's got piles of money and no, uh, no descendants. You know, hopefully I'm in Aunt Gertrude's will and maybe I'll you know, make a mozza uh, if she dies. Don't sit around waiting for Aunt Gertrude. Uh, instead, think of Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. 
Think of Christ who on the Sermon on the Mount says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The earth is his and he's giving it to us. But it's even bigger than just the earth. After Jesus' resurrection, he tells his disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That means the whole universe is at his disposal. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 1 that God appointed his son to be heir of all things, to inherit all things. So if God has made us heirs with Christ, then we are going to inherit everything. I mean, how does that work? I, I don't know. But it's big. If your faith is in Christ, you're in the will. This is the family you want to be part of. Implication four and conclusion. We therefore must not go back to enslavement. We looked earlier at these confronting words, chapter 4, verse 8. Formerly, Paul says, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You're observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you, Paul says, that somehow I've wasted my efforts on you. It's a kind of a climax to the argument of the letter. To impose burdens, religious or otherwise, on someone who's been adopted by God and liberated from the penalty of our sin is to enslave a person, to push them backwards, to impose slavery on a free person. And we must remember that we were once slaves because of our sin. As Jesus said in John 8, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. God has not only liberated us from that, he's adopted us. All right, so what does it look like then for us to go back to enslavement? It's to go back to weak and miserable forces, the forces that typify human society. And the world we live in is full of these kinds of structures and forces that, typify, that divide and that alienate. Just this week, my daughter and I were talking about the global economy and how, much, uh, how wealthy we are in Australia compared to other countries. And I drew a little graph in Excel, and there was Australia, median wealth, and there was Liberia. Tiny little line, you could hardly see it. You see, our global economy alienates the poor and privileges the wealthy. And these are the miserable structures that Christians despise. We, ha we hate this. Why shouldn't the people in Liberia have a, a similar kind of experience to us? And so why do we not see the problem of global poverty? You know, God's children are in every country and yet Christians, you know, there are many Christians who actually prioritise economic growth in Australia, uh, even, even in light of this problem. You know, that's the way the pagans think. We don't think that way. Uh, we, we don't think in a way that sustains the global West's, you know, hold on wealth. It's just one example. I mean, I guess associated with it is the immigration policy we have. Now, what it basically does is alienates the refugee, the person looking for somewhere to go, Christian or otherwise. Um, and, and, you know, why not let them come to a country where they, where they might actually hear the gospel? And so we kind of privilege the established citizen. Well, I was born here. 
you know, I've kind of got a special spot here in Australia. We can't think like that. See, God sees the hearts of every human being and his children are spread amongst all, all around the world, amongst refugees and citizens. So just, I mean, that's just, a, that's just a snapshot. But when we consider the human-imposed status differences, just remember the gospel smashes them. And we need to take a lead in the community in opposing those kinds of structures that divide and alienate. But we also need to really focus on how it looks here in amongst us and how we treat each other, each other those we know are brothers and sisters in Christ. How are we shaped by that grace from the inside out. We're not slaves. We're children. We're heirs with our big brother Christ. We're heirs of all things. You think back to um, Gloria in Nigeria. Uh, one of the things she says is that um, whenever a child is brought to her asking for adoption, she says yes. You know, so it's got to 50. <laughs> Where's it go next? I mean, what if it gets around that, you know, if you go to Gloria, I'm sure it's got around by now. I don't know quite the logistics of that. But this is the way God operates. He values human people. And he values us so much that he has adopted us into his family for eternity. So are you a child of God? Are you putting your faith in him? I urge you every day, to entrust yourself to him, to, to hear from him, to be challenged by him, to call on him as your father because he wants you in his family. Let me lead us in prayer. Our father, our loving heavenly father, our almighty, glorious, holy father, we just thank you for your adoption of us. We thank you for this extraordinary offer, this anticipation of an extraordinary future. And we pray for your spirit's power and enabling as we think about our lives, as we think about the structures in the globe, uh, the structures in our nation, the structures in our church and the assumptions. Uh, please, may we think like you think. Give us a love for all humans. Give us a desire to care for all people and particularly for those of the household of faith. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.